Shalom and welcome to the series, The Gospel According to Moses. We're in the book of Exodus, and this is lesson 42. This is Reverend John Ferret, and in this lesson we're going to focus in on Exodus chapter 16. So let's begin reading from the New American Standard, verses 1 through 3. Then they set out from Elim, and all the congregation of the sons of Israel came to the wilderness of Tzin. Your Bible might say the wilderness of sin, but actually in Hebrew it's Tzin. It's got nothing to do with sin. They came to the wilderness of Tzin, which is between Elim and Sinai, on the 15th day of the second month after their departure from the land of Egypt. The whole congregation of the sons of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron, in the wilderness. The sons of Israel said to them, Would that we had died by the Lord's hand in the land of Egypt, when we sat by the pots of meat, when we ate bread to the full. For you have brought us out into the wilderness to kill us, or kill this whole assembly with hunger. We're one month from the beginning of this journey. Now, this is a lunar month, so it could be 29 to 30 days. Let's just assume 30 days for the moment. Which means they traveled 180 to 270 miles over that 30-day period if we assume that they traveled each and every day. They did, it was a nonstop exodus. Now, this is based upon the fact that they either traveled 6 miles per day or nine miles per day. Now, the six miles per day, this was in a previous podcast where Dr. Bryant Wood from the Associates of Biblical Research had talked about a scientific study of nomadic shepherds, specifically the Bedouin, the Bedouin people that uh, lived as nomads in the Negev, Israel. And it was quite clear that those nomadic shepherds, when they were going from one place to another, could only go six miles per day. It was all based upon the fact of their flocks of sheep. You cannot push sheep beyond their limits in terms of they need to feed consistently. On top of that, there was a study with regards to Ezra. He traveled from Susa in Babylon to Jerusalem. And based upon the actual path, the actual trade routes that we know that Ezra must have taken, and the mileage, it was nine miles per day. So they traveled on this 30-day period, if they traveled each and every day, 180 to 270 total miles. Now, what this means, you guys, they cannot be in Saudi Arabia. They started at Tel el-Daba. That is the name of the modern archaeological site, which also was known as Avaris, and then later on was also known as the city of Ramses. And from that location to actually getting to the crossing on the Sinai Peninsula, on the eastern side of the Sinai Peninsula at Nuweiba, to get to just to that crossing is 290 miles. And here, 
we have the Hebrews traveling at most 270 miles, and they are already on the other side. They're already on, si on the other side of the crossing of the sea. So 290 miles from their start to Nueva to cross the Gulf of Aqaba, <laughs> you guys, it, it means that Mount Sinai cannot be in Saudi Arabia based on real science and based upon real geography. Now to go into a detailed study of this, I recommend Exodus podcast number 39, lesson 39, part one, and I've linked you to that here at the site for this podcast. If you're using perhaps a podcast app on your phone or your uh, iPad, for instance, or your Apple iPhone, someplace on there you should see a little arrow that says more or uh, some statement that says uh, show more or maybe just perhaps a little arrow indicating that there's more underneath here. If you do that, uh, you'll be able to find that link to Exodus 39 part 1, which gives you a strong scientific, historical, geographical argument that Mount Sinai cannot be, or let's put it this way, the theory that Mount Sinai is in Saudi Arabia uh, is very problematic based upon real geography. Or it's at the website. So if you go to the website, www.lightofmenorah.org, light of menorah, all one word. And again, menorah is spelled M-E-N-O-R-A-H, lightofmenorah.org. And you look for this lesson, the Gospel According to Moses, Exodus, Lesson 42. Underneath the picture, you'll find some more text more details about this session and in there you'll find the link to Exodus number 39 part 1. Now we read about the fact that in these three verses that the whole congregation of Israel complained to Moses and they're telling Moses you want to kill us? Now this is a little crazy. <laughs> You say, what's wrong with them? I mean, they just sang the song of the sea. This is in Exodus 15, verse 2. Listen. The Lord is my strength and song. He's become my salvation. This is my God, and I will praise him. My Father's God, and I will extol him. Or in Exodus 15, 13. In your loving kindness, you have led the people whom you have redeemed. In your strength, you have guided them to your holy habitation. And we do ask the question, what's wrong with these guys? Now, on top of that, they just saw Hayad Elohim, the hand of God, destroy Egypt's army and the chariot force, totally wipe them out. And what happens after that? This is in Exodus 14, Exodus 14, 31. When Israel saw the great power which the Lord had used against the Egyptians, the people feared the Lord and they believed in the Lord and his servant Moses. He said, wait a minute, and now they're complaining? What happened to their trust? What's wrong with these guys? It seems as if in Chatorah Adonai, the Torah of the Lord, the instruction of the Lord, not his laws, God is showing us through them, through the Hebrews. He's showing us. He's showing our human nature. 
it's as if God might be telling us that miracles are not effective to assure our faith, to assure one's belief. If it were the case, and after all the Hebrews experienced, then their faith in Adonai should have been unshakable. It's the same for us. But miracles do not assure one's belief and faith. Oh, they happen. There are miracles that many of us experienced, but they don't assure our faith. Jesus even says this in his own words. I'm going to go to John chapter 2, verses 23 to 25, when Jesus says this, Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover during the feast, many believed in his name, observing his signs, which he was doing. Signs, miracles. But Jesus, on his part, was not entrusting himself to them, for he knew all men. And because he did not need anyone to testify concerning man, for he himself knew what was in man. Or, we can go to Luke 16, verse 31. And in this story, the rich man is talking to Abraham, Father Abraham. And if Father Abraham basically is responding back to the rich man. The rich man said, please, send them somebody from the dead, and then they'll repent. But then Father Abraham says, and this is Jesus' words, actually, if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be persuaded even if someone rises from the dead. So God is tell, teaching us here in Exodus 16 and in Jesus' own words that miracles don't cut it. Even Jesus' own resurrection, somebody experienced that that would not assure their faith. That, that's quite amazing as we start putting together Exodus 16 in Jesus' own words. But the Hebrews are just like us. How easily we forget. How easily does the effect of miracles wane as a new negative reality sets in? Dennis Prager sees another aspect to this. And I'm going to be referring to his commentary here on the book of Exodus, here in chapter 16, and his excellent commentary on the Torah, both for Jew and Gentile. He says that. He's writing this both for those who practice Judaism and those who practice Christianity. This is our Bible, and he's trying to comment on that. And so in here, some uh, with a comment a comment on uh, chapter uh, Exodus 16, verse 3, where the Israelites say, If only we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt when we, when we sat by the flesh pots, when we ate our fill of bread. Dennis says, the Israelites draw an exaggerated, idealized picture of the past. Of course they did. I mean, did they, you, they didn't have it good. Meats in abundance, bread in abundance? No way. They forgot the bitterness and severity of their bondage. 
we recall way back in Exodus chapter 2 and verse 23 and following, we talked about a Hebrew word, Ze'acha. Ze'acha is the Hebrew word that says that the Hebrews cried out. Ze'acha is a shriek. It's a cry in dis- a cry that comes from despair, total defeat. Ze'acha is the type of cry that a a mother or father would have crying out when they learn the horror that their son or daughter died in the Vivaldi school shooting back in May in 2022. That's that's the cry of terror. So indeed. The Hebrews are creating an idealized picture of the past. Dennis goes on to say, They longed to return to Egypt not because the food was really as plentiful as they claim, but because as slaves they did not have to provide for themselves. It is a myth that people yearn most for freedom. Isn't this an, it's an interesting thought. Dennis's view, he says, and he goes on, Some people, thank God, do. Some yeah, Again, what I'm saying is that some people actually long and yearn for freedom, but many don't. He goes on to say, but many, if not most people, refer to be taken care of, even at the price of loss of freedoms, rather than to be have to take care of themselves. That is why people almost everywhere in the world prefer a big state to a limited one, even though by definition, the bigger the state, the less the individual's individual's freedom. And we look at this today. What's happening in our own population? What's happening even in the church? There was a recent study that the aspects of a secular society, a non-godly society, everything around us is seeping into the church. And we all just listen to our politicians. Big government will care for you free college or we'll take care of your college debt, free child care, free Medicaid. It's as if the politicians are saying to us, we'll care for you if you give up your freedoms. I was also listening to Dennis Prager's audio sessions on Exodus 16, which I normally do as one of my preparations to prepare for my podcast. And he was talking about his study of the funeral of Stalin. His rule in Russia was unbelievably harsh and cruel and vicious. Alexander Solzhenitsyn, a famous Russian novelist, was extremely critical of the Soviet uh, Union. He made us aware of the terrible slavery in the Gulag. He estimated that Stalin executed up to 60 million, most of them his own citizens. But at the funeral, as Dennis Prager relates, the crowd was unbelievable. It was awesome. It was so jammed and so chaotic, many people were crushed to death. They lived under Stalin and his iron foot, and the terrible control. Why? Why are they mourning for such a psychopathic monster? Could very well be because the state took care of them. The state basically says, don't worry. 
We'll feed you. We'll care for you. It was socialism. Socialism as practiced in the Soviet Union. And what do we see in our country today? But many politicians talking about socialism. Bringing the concepts out of Soviet the Soviet Union here to the United States. <laughs> For the Hebrews, slavery was harsh, but it's the ultimate welfare system. Egypt took care of the Hebrews. But God seems to want to, God enters history, and he wants his people to grasp the notion of these famous words, give me liberty or give me death. He wants Israel to grow up. He wants us to grow up. Don't stay as a child. Don't seek to be taken care of. Grow up. Be mature. Become free to control your own destiny. And this is the same thing for us in the United States. USA, and the way our politicians portray why it means to vote for them, because they're creating a welfare state. Big government, big brother to take care of us. Again, the United States version of socialism. And that idea is much bigger than liberty. It's much bigger than personal freedom. Give away our freedom for the treats that we get from Big Daddy. What about build back better? And the government's saying, we'll do it, don't worry. Shut up, listen to us. It's sad, but it's real. It's us. It's our human nation. It's our human nature. Going on in Exodus 16, starting at verse 4. Then the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I will rain bread from heaven for you, and the people shall go out and gather a day's portion every day, that I may test them whether or not they will walk in my instruction. By the way, the word there, whether or not they will walk in my instruction, the word there is Torah, <laughs> not law. Isn't that interesting? Again, here is the New American Standard, the translators, at least giving us an idea that they understand that Torah means instruction. Verse 5, on the sixth day when they prepare what they bring in, it will be twice, oh, I'm sorry, on the sixth day when they prepare what they bring in, it will be twice as much as they gather daily. So Moses and Aaron said to all the sons of Israel, at evening you will know that the Lord has brought you out of the land of Egypt, and in the morning you will see the glory of the Lord, for he hears your grumblings against the Lord, and what are we that you grumble against us? Moses said, this will happen when the Lord gives you meat to eat in the evening and bread to the full in the morning. For the Lord hears your grumblings, which you grumble against him. And what are we? Your grumblings are not against us, but against the Lord. Then Moses said to Aaron, say to the, all the congregation of the sons of Israel, come near before the Lord, for he has heard your grumblings. Came about as Aaron spoke to the whole congregation of the sons of Israel, that they looked to, toward the wilderness. And behold, the glory of the Lord appeared in the cloud. 
And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, I have heard the grumblings of the sons of Israel. Speak to them, saying, At twilight you shall eat meat, and in the morning you shall be filled with bread, and you shall know that I am the Lord your God. So it came about at evening that the quails came up and covered the camp, and in the morning there was a layer of dew around the camp. When the layer of dew evaporated, behold, on the surface of the wilderness there was a fine flake-like thing, fine as the frost on the ground. When the sons of Israel saw it, they said to one another, What is it? For they did not know what it was. And Moses said to them, It is the bread which the Lord has given you to eat. So Israel was complaining to Moses, but in verses 8 and 9, Moses makes it very clear. His statement, Your grumblings are not against us, but against the Lord, against Yahweh. And again, remember, if you see the word Lord in your Bible, probably capitalized, maybe all capitalized, that is a cover for the actual name of God, because in the Hebrew, in the original Hebrew, you would have yud Hey vav Hey, the Tetragrammaton. And so it was the Jewish rabbis who actually created a rule that said, we will not even pronounce his name. And so they put in a cover for any time that name of God appears, and their cover word, for example, could be Adonai. And again, Adonai transferred to English as Lord. So it's actual God's name there, Yahweh, the way I pronounce it. Now it seems to be verified that in verse 12, where God says he heard their complaining, the complaining that was coming up really to God, not to just to Moses and Aaron. Now, one can see probably where this is coming from. They're 30 days out. This is specifically mentioned right at the beginning of the chapter. So they're probably running out of wheat or barley. This is likely only for the simple reason that 30 days eating bread every day and feeding their families and so on. On top of that, they're in the Sinai wilderness. The Egyptians considered the Sinai wilderness the dwelling place of evil gods. They called it a place of chaos. Actually, the Egyptian word would be isfit, a place of disorder, a place of evil. Where in Egypt, right there next to the Nile, where everything's green, where you can grow wheat and barley and fruit and so on and live a fantastic life, they would say that's the place of ma'at, the place of truth, order, goodness, life, the place that is anti-chaos, anti-isfit. So the Sinai definitely is not a place conducive to living. But now, here, in the midst of the chaos, God said he will supply meat and bread. Now this is a polemic against Egypt. Now what I mean by a polemic is, I want you to consider two, two, two concepts. And one concept 
is a direct attack against the second concept. So therefore, if the first concept is a direct attack against the second concept, concept, you would say that the first concept is a polemic against the second one. And here we have it. The gods of Egypt, one concept. The God of Israel, the second concept. And indeed, God, the God of Israel, and his actions are po- is a polemic against Egypt. Egypt said that the land was evil, a place of disorder, a place of death, a place of chaos, a place of this isfit. And in the midst of this isfit, this chaos, God shows again he is God. Ha'el Hayakid, the only God. He has the power over isfit, even death. Remember, way back in lesson two or three, we talked about the fact that Israel had assimilated into the Egyptian culture. They knew this concept of Isfit. They knew this concept that the Sinai wilderness was chaos. They knew Ma'at, the land back in Egypt that was green, water, unbelievable fertile soil. They actually were able to eat meat and had bread in bitterness. But here they're surrounded by a land of death. So there's more to all this than we've learned. When we put the Bible in its historical context, we see how these events so relate to the Egyptian culture. We need to understand the Egyptian culture. We're able to see how the Egyptian, ancient Egyptian pagan worldview affected all Israel. In a place not conducive to life itself, God provides. His power is beyond the gods. Jesus reiterates this. He's God. He doesn't change. So we read in Matthew 6, verses 30 and 34, When Jesus says, But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which is alive today and tomorrow, is thrown in the furnace, will he not much more clothe you, you you of little faith? Do not worry then, saying, What will we eat? Or what will we drink? Or what will we wear for clothing? For the Gentiles eagerly seek all these things. For your heavenly Father knows that you need all these things, but seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. So do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will care for itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. I think about the chaos that we're in right now here in the year 2022 as we head into the summer. They're predicting gas prices to be six, seven, eight dollars a gallon by August. They're predicting diesel costs will be up to seven to ten dollars a gallon. They're predicting food shortages. It's unbelievable what our politicians, our government has done to us. And what does God say? In the midst of chaos, in the midst of this isfit, look what he did for his people, his people, his chosen ones, his elect. Will he not also be with us in these days? 
helping us, supporting us, and caring for us. That's the message we're reading. Now in verse 15, we read, When the sons of Israel saw it, they said to one another, What is it? For they did not know what it was. And Moses said to them, It is the bread which the Lord has given you to eat. The Hebrew is Ve-Hiru, Ve-Ne Israel, Ve-Yomirov, Ishal Akiv, Manhu, Kilo, Yadeho, Mahu. The word manna comes from the phrase in Exodus 15, Manhu. Manhu is a Hebrew phrase, basically means what is it. And over the course of time, the etymology of Manhu transferred finally into the English to Mana. And John Kareed's Torah commentary on the book of Exodus on this verse, and again, John Kareed is just an amazing Bible archaeologist, Egyptologist, theologian, um, highly credible, and his commentary is fantastic. So his comments on the phrase manhu, listen, when the Hebrews saw, or when the Hebrews see the flaky substance, they ask manhu, which literally means, what is it? The word man is unique in Hebrew. The normal way of asking what is ma, which is later used in this verse. What is it? What it was. Man is an ancient dialectic variant found in Canaanite literature, such as the text in Ugarat. So, when you hear about mana, and you make the statement, you're, you're, you actually ask this question. So you ask, what is it that God provided in the desert? Let's say you're teaching a Sunday school class, and you're trying to review the lesson with the kids. So you say to them, what is it that God provides in the desert? And you might all hear the kids say, oh, manna. But that's very interesting because what you're really saying is this. Let me repeat it. Again, you're asking the kids this question, and you're saying, what is it that God provided in the desert? And the kids said, what is it? So in other words, you said, what is it that God provided in the desert? And you hear the reply, what is it? And you're saying, that, that's the question I'm asking. What is it? And they say, what is it? And it reminds me of Abbot Costello, who's on first, for those of you that might remember that. But Moses answers the question clearly in verse 15. He says it's bread. They asked, Manhu, what is it? Which has been translated into the English as manna. And Moses basically said, It's bread. But this is bread. It's exactly what God promised. He did not promise manna. That doesn't make any sense. God did not promise, what is it? He promised bread. So let's go on, starting in verse 16. 
This is what the Lord has commanded. Gather of it every man as much as he should eat. You shall take an omer apiece according to the number of persons each of you has in his tent. Just some comments here on 16. They dwelt in tents. The Hebrew word is hohel. And the Strong's number is H166. They dwelt in tents. You can find this in Deuteronomy chapter 1, verse 27. You can find this in Deuteronomy chapter 5, verse 30. You can find this in Deuteronomy chapter 16, verse 7, and many more. They dwelt in a tent, ohel, or ohelim is plural. Now you're here today, and this will confuse Christians, because they don't know the Hebrew, and there are many Jews who don't know the Hebrew either, and so they some say that the Hebrews dwell, dwelt in Sukkahs. You'll hear this because it's related to the Feast of Tabernacles or the Feast of Sukkot in the fall. And you can find that in Leviticus 23. Leviticus 23, verse 42. Now a Sukkah, it's implied today. It's kind of a lean-to with wooden posts and it's covered with leaves, or branches according to rabbinic rules and regulations. And again, so the Jewish people would actually set up a sukkah that looked like that with the wooden posts with the leaves and so on. And so some rabbis teach that indeed the Hebrews dwelt in such booths, but it's totally incorrect as it regards to history and as regards to the Bible. They dwelt in tents. That's what the Bible says. Now, Sukkah, the, the Strong's number is H5521, 5521. And when you take a look in the Gesenius Hebrew lexicon, it can mean a booth or a pavilion or a tent. It's a temporary dwelling place. So once again, we see that in Orthodox Rabbinic Judaism today, that many Christians buy into what the Orthodox rabbis say without understanding real biblical history. This has been proven over and over and again by Jewish scholars who are religious that in Orthodox Judaism, which is a small, small denomination of Judaism itself, that the rabbis will actually sometimes even go against history, science, and real geography so that they can basically push their own agenda. Now, I, I think they have great intentions here. And I know that dwelling in a sukkah and the Feast of Sukkot has tremendous application for us as Christians. But what I'm trying to, again, is expand our view and to take a look at the reality of the truth of God's Word based upon real History, putting the Bible in its historical perspective. So let's go on. Verse 17, The sons of Israel did so, and some gathered much and some little. When they measured it with an omer, he who had gathered much had no excess, and he who gathered little had no lack. Every man gathered as much as he should eat. Moses said to them, Let no man leave it, uh, until the morning, but they did not listen to Moses, and some left part of it until morning, and it bred worms and became foul, and Moses was angry with them. 
They gathered it morning by morning, every man as much as he should eat, but when the sun grew hot, it would melt. Now on the sixth day, they gathered twice as much bread, two omers for each one, when all the leaders of the congregation came and told Moses. By the way, in verse 22, it talks about the fact that they gathered twice as much on the sixth day. This is where the tradition practiced by the Jewish people even today on their Shabbat, on their Friday evening Sabbath meal. Sabbath starts for them on Friday night at sundown, and they'll have a Friday evening Sabbath meal, and they'll always have two loaves of challah bread, uh, twisted bread. You look up challah, C-H-A-L-L-A-H, do a Google search on that, and especially on images, and you'll be able to took take a look at what challah actually looks like. But this is where the tradition comes from, exactly verse 22 here in Exodus. Verse 23, Then he said to them, This is what the Lord meant. Tomorrow is a Sabbath observance, a holy Sabbath to the Lord. Bake what you will bake, and boil what you will boil. And all that is left over put aside to be kept until morning. So this is the first time the word Sabbath is used, Shabbat, as it's connected in terms of God's Sabbath. This is what God created in Genesis chapter 2, verse 3. On top of that, it's declared Kodesh, which is from Kadosh. Kodesh, Strong's Numbers H6944, means it's special. It's set apart, very distinct, or holy. And we have the phrase, Kodesh le Yahweh, holy to the Lord. In other words, this is his. This is a big deal. God even says this in Leviticus 23, right at the beginning. He talks about the Moedim, the feasts, actually appointed times. And he said, these are mine. And so indeed, here we have Shabbat and the rules, some of the rules and regulations about practicing the Shabbat before Sinai. We're not even at Sinai yet. We haven't even got to Exodus 19 yet. We're on our way. Shabbat, the word is um, in Hebrew, the Strong's number is H7673. It does not mean rest only. It does not mean take a nap. It does not mean lay back and take it easy the rest of the day. The better understanding of the word Shabbat is desist. Desist from certain efforts. Cease from a certain activity. You always hear kids say in from Genesis chapter 2, verse 3, that God rested. And they say, does God need to rest if he's God? And it's very interesting because, again, it's the mistaken notion of what God meant in the Hebrew. God doesn't need to rest, but he ceased from his work. He desisted. He stopped his work. So in this scenario that we're dealing with right here in Exodus 16, Moses, from God, is telling the Hebrews to desist from going out to get bread on the sixth day. Or no, 
on the seventh day, you do not do this. You're not going out to get your bread, your manna. They're to stop this activity on the seventh day. That's all Torah is commanding here. There's no command to rest. Just stop doing this work. You can gather twice as much on the sixth day, but on the seventh day, you're not going to gather any. There's no command to sleep all day. And on top of that, there's the phrase, and you will not go out of your tent. You will not go out of your place. That makes sense. Don't go out of your place to go back out into the field to gather manna. This is God's special 24-hour period. It's a special time. It's not ours. As I mentioned, you can check that out in Leviticus 23. God made time holy, and he said, In this time, on the seventh day, you will cease. You will desist from your normal activities. Not rest, because you are actually going to be doing things that are different on the Sabbath. So when it talks about the Sabbath as being holy, it's not a ritual. Going to church on Sunday is not the Sabbath. Going to a church is not Sabbath. Sabbath is not, it's not a place. It's not a ritual. It's not an action. It's time. And in verse 29 of this chapter, it talks about the fact that God gave it to us. We recall that God created the heavens and the earth. He created space and time. So in God's existence, there's no time. In God's existence, there's no need to manipulate space like we do when we go to work. We go to work, whatever we're doing, we're actually changing something into something else. We're manipulating space. So God says, no, I want you to stop manipulating space. You can't manipulate time. And I remember one great Jewish philosopher, Abraham Heschel. He wrote a book on the Sabbath. And he talked about this idea of God's Sabbath is time. And in his book, he says that it is as if the, the Sabbath is a way, a way to experience what it's like to live in God's place. To, uh, you, a Christian perspective, what's it like to be in heaven? There's no time. There's no space. There's it. How to be with him. As I said, it's a moed, not a feast. As you go to Leviticus 23. Moed, the Strong's number is 4150, H4150, and it means a time or place to meet. It's an appointed time. In other words, it's God's appointed time for us. It's scheduled, and we can't change it because it's His. So if you ever hear people saying, hey, I can pick my own day to rest. I can pick my own day to take it easy. I don't have to do it from Friday evening to Saturday evening, there are some people who say Sunday is the Sabbath. So from Saturday midnight until Sunday midnight is 
for some people, they would say that's the Sabbath. That's the traditional Christian Sabbath, the church's Sabbath. And people say, I don't need the rest on Sunday. I don't have to do it on a Saturday. I'll do it on a Wednesday. But they missed the whole point. Because the word Sabbath, which can mean rest, in this instant means cease, to desist. And it's God's time. It's his. It's not our time. And he's saying, I'm giving you this appointed time. And I want to meet with you in this time, my time, not your time. And we miss the entire focus on this. Shabbat is a picture to us that brings us beyond space and time. It's a special time for fellowship of us with Yahweh and He with us. Again, coming in verse 24, so they put it aside until morning as Moses had ordered, and it did not become foul, nor was there any worm in it. Moses said, eat it today, for today is the Sabbath to the Lord, and today you will not find it in the field. Six days you shall gather it, but on the seventh day, the Sabbath, there will be none. It came about on the seventh day that some of the people went out to gather, but they found none. Then the Lord said to Moses, how long do you refuse to keep my commandments and my instructions? Remember, God set this up as a test. He said this earlier in the chapter. I'm doing this to test them. Will they keep my commandments and my instructions? When we go to this verse 28, where it says, keep my commandments and my instructions, we have two Hebrew words here. One for commandments and one for instructions. Commandments, the Hebrew word, comes from the Hebrew word mitzvah. It's a command, an ordinance, or a law. The Strong's Numbers H4687. Mitzvah is a Hebrew word for law. Guess what the Hebrew word for instructions are? Torahot, from Torah. Torah is God's instruction, not law. And again, the Hebrew word Torah, Strong's number is H8451. Now, in the New American Standard reading, chapter 16, verse 28, the New American Standard says instructions. In the King James, it says laws. But Torah does not mean law. Not in the real Hebrew. It means instruction, God's instruction. We keep on reading in 16. See, the Lord has given you the Sabbath. Therefore, he gives you bread for two days on the sixth day. Remain every man in his place. Let no man go out of his place on the seventh day. So the people rested on the seventh day. They did not rest on the seventh day. They ceased from going out to gather the manna on the seventh day. They did not have to leave their tent. They didn't have to go out to do that. God didn't command them to rest. He's clear, desist, stop, cease from going out on the morning of the seventh day. Stay home. No need to go out. I gave you two portions on day number six. Verse 31, the house of Israel named it manna, and it was like coriander seed, white, and its taste was like wafers with honey. Then Moses said, this is what the Lord has commanded, let an omerful of it be kept throughout your generations, that they may see the bread that I fed you in the wilderness when I brought you out of the land of Egypt.
So they were to keep an omer of the bread in a jar. And when we take a look at that Hebrew word omer, it normally means a sheaf. You can take a look at that in Leviticus 23, 11 through 15. And again, I'm using the reference here of Dr. John Kareed's commentary on the book of Exodus. And a sheaf is a, the best way I can describe it is in a wheat harvest or barley harvest, when the wheat is gathered into a bunch and they tie it together and it looks like uh, a standing, a standing man of wheat, uh, and you got all these standing uh, wheat uh, collections, and and they're all over the field. That's a sheaf, which in Hebrew is an omer. But an omer in this verse is basically a measurement of weight or capacity, so it can be used in a couple of different ways. And again, here we go again with the idea that Hebrew language, Hebrew words, are conceptual in meaning. So we have a concept of uh, a measurement of weight or capacity or a gathering together uh, of something in a sheaf. So here it's one-tenth of an ephah. An ephah is one-tenth of an o, a, a homer. And a homer is about 48.4 gallons. So since an omer is a tenth of an ephah, and we know an ephah is a tenth of a homer, uh, an omer is approximately a half a gallon. Now in verse 33, Moses said to Aaron, Take a jar and put an omer full of manna in it. Place it before the Lord to be kept throughout your generation. So they place it before the Lord. Now there's a Jewish tradition. You can read this in Hebrews chapter 9 verse 4 and in the book of Hebrews chapter 9 verse 4 it talks about the fact that there was a pot a jar an omer of the manna in the ark of the covenant but that's a Jewish tradition because nowhere in the Bible nowhere except in Hebrews 9 4 does it talk about the fact that there was a jar that of of manna that was put in the ark of the covenant but that's assumed when it talks about placing it before the Lord. Now, I have no problem that Aaron placed it before the Lord, and it probably was in the Ark of the Covenant, but like I said, the Torah is silent, and I'm always trying to emphasize, we're trying to teach what the Torah says, what the Torah does not say. We're always trying to teach what the Bible says, or the fact, what the Bible is not saying. And we don't want to put the words, we don't want to put words in the Torah's mouth, but we can see that Aaron, taking this, placing it before the Lord, where God wrote the Ten Commandments on two plates of stone, they put them in the Ark of the Covenant, and so you can say he would put the jar of manna inside the Ark of the Covenant as well. In verse 34, we read, And God and the Lord commanded Moses, to, so Aaron placed it before the testimony to be kept. Now, testimony... The Hebrew word there actually means witness. In other words, the jar of manna is a witness. At the witness of God did. That's exactly what God told them to do. Let this be a remembrance, a witness of what happened. And testimony here does not mean ark. We read about manna, and we read about it 
in the book of Revelation. Go to Revelation chapter 2, verses 12 through 17. We're in the ancient city of Pergamum. We read, And to the angel of the church of Pergamum write, The one who has the sharp two-edged sword says this, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, and you hold fast my name, and did not deny my faith even in the days of Antipas, my witness, my faithful one, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you, because you have there some who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who kept teaching Balak, to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel, to eat things sacrificed to idols, and to commit acts of immorality. So you also have some who in the same way hold the teachings of the Nicolaitans. Therefore repent, or else I am coming to you quickly, and I will make war against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear to what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, to him I will give him some of the hidden manna. And I will give him a white stone and a new name written on the stone, which no one knows but he who receives it. Now this is an excellent example of Jewish tradition that has entered the Bible. The concept of hidden manna is nowhere found in God's word, except here. And the question is, where does this idea of hidden manna come from? It's not in the Bible. So I'm going to go into the InterVarsity Press Bible Background Commentary of the New Testament, written by Dr. Craig Keener. And his comment here, as we're taking a look at this letter to Pergamum in its, in its biblical historical context, he comments, the, bread, the original Ark of the Covenant was permanently lost in 586 B.C. You can read about this in Jeremiah chapter 3, specifically verse 16. And the manna inside it had vanished before then. So there was no manna inside the uh, jar in the ark, even at 586 B.C. But there's a wide spectrum of Jewish tradition. This is rabbinical views, opinions, declared that Jeremiah, when you take a look at the book of 2 Maccabees or 4 Baruch, that Jeremiah or an angel, and this is in 2 Baruch, that Jeremiah or an angel had hidden them and, they, and that they would be restored at the end time. Even the Samaritans in Jesus' day had a similar view. So the end time is the days of Messiah. It's the Messianic age. And so when we're reading here the letter to Pergamum, another aspect that we see is that you need to understand, you need to understand the Hebrew and Jewish roots behind the book of Revelation to even begin to grasp what's going on. Because it says here, those who overcome will be given some of the hidden manna. That means that will be done in the end of the age, in the end times, in the Messianic age. So again, returning to Exodus chapter 16, verse 34, as the Lord commanded Moses, so Aaron placed it before the testimony to be kept. 
Verse 35, the sons of Israel ate the manna 40 years until they came to an inhabited land. They ate the manna until they came to the border of the land of Canaan, the land of Canaan. And in verse 36, now an omer is a tenth of an ephah, as we previously took a look at. So God provides them with bread from heaven, and it stops after they cross the Jordan River, just outside of Jericho, and they're going to celebrate Passover for the first time in their promised land. It's 40 years. You can read about this in Joshua chapter 5, verse 12. 40 years in chaos, 40 years in Isfit, 40 years in the terrible wilderness of Sinai where you can't grow wheat or barley or food. Matthew 6, 8, God tells us that he already knows what we need before we even ask. Psalm 23, the sheep, us, us part of God's flock, will not be in want. We will not be left alone to be a sheep. God takes care of his sheep so that the sheep can survive as sheep. And again, it's also a witness. It's also a witness of Yeshua. As we read in John 6, verses 30 to 34. So they said to him, What then do you do for a sign? So that we may see and believe you. What work do you perform? Our fathers ate the man in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread out of heaven to eat. So in a sense, those people who are talking to Jesus right now are saying, show us a sign, show us a witness, show us a testimony. That's exactly what the manna was. Remember, it's going to be a, they're going to take that manna, they're going to put it into that jar and put it probably in the Ark of the Covenant. And it's going to be a witness, a testimony about what God had done. It's going to be a sign. And what does Jesus say? Verse 32. Truly, truly, I say to you, it is not Moses who has given you the bread out of heaven, but it is my Father who gives you the true bread out of heaven. For the bread of God is that which comes down out of heaven and gives life to the world. Yes, indeed, come, Lord Jesus. Come and give us this bread. Ha-lechem chayim. Come and give us the bread of life. So again, I will see you as we continue in, continue on in the gospel according to Moses in the book of Exodus. So until then, I'll see you in Lesson 43, and I wish you Shalom. Shalom.